Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, Diana Clark, and our guest today is Sue Schwartzman. Welcome, Sue. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. We are very excited to jump into what I think is a really hot topic. Um, And today's title is Building Generational Wealth, How to Empower the Next Generation. So for our listeners today, for context around Sue's background, Sue has been working in the field of wealth um, and working with wealthy families for over two decades. She has a lot of experience advising individuals, teenagers, and multi-generational families, and even corporations to think about how to systematically and strategically engage in philanthropy and volunteerism. She has a wide range of experience as it applies to philanthropy, including in the areas of education, program development, family engagement, and even running grant cycles and helping people to develop personal philanthropic goals. So, Sue, I'd love to just start out with better understanding sort of what brought you to this field, and can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? Sure. So, I always say, I didn't choose this career or this field, it chose me. And I say that because um, my background, um, I have an MA in education. I was a teacher for many, many years and building always a community leader, building camps, doing all kinds of things that involved youth, just always drawn to youth. They really motivate me. And I was given an opportunity in a private school I worked with um, and was their inaugural seventh grade humanities teacher to build, build a curriculum that had something to do with giving and philanthropy. And um, what I created and what, I, what happened at that, in that classroom just motivated my whole career. So I created a, a philanthropy curriculum, wrapped all the state standards for humanities, for social studies, for English, um, around this idea that kids have things they're passionate about and could study what those issues were. And we can actually become a board that gave money to the community issues through a decision-making process. And it actually, it, it ignited me. What I saw was kids that didn't thrive in education backgrounds reached new educational heights with, a, with this project because the project truly, the outcomes mattered. They were giving real money away. Their effort in their research and their presentation mattered. So I saw that the education abilities of these kids reach peaks and I saw their parents get excited. I saw a community get excited about this. And it turns out that these kids at this one private, it was a private school, were raising about $50,000 a year for community issues and giving it away in a big celebration. And it was such a win-win. So I got very excited about that. Um, And then the Jewish Community Federation and Endowment Fund in San Francisco was watching what the Kellogg Foundation was doing around teen grant making and they they hired me and said what can you do with this so i i created what's still in existence now i created about 20 years ago the jewish teen foundation program it's it became a a model of international ways of doing of doing teen teen um 
philanthropy engagement, but what it what it essentially was was groups of 25 kids in four different communities around the San Francisco Bay Area learning to be strategic fundraisers and grant makers for causes they cared about. And this group of kids was raising about $200,000 a year at their peak. And so the potential of teens to um, make a real difference truly palpable and what I learned with the with the teens that really as I said ignite me was that these these groups of teens that I made sure represented the communities that they were from so some were uber wealthy some were on scholarship to be in the program it was really a mix and what I learned was that um, kids from extremely wealthy families that really kind of wanted nothing to do with the family's philanthropy even though they kept being pushed and asked once they had an opportunity to do something with peers they jumped at it and they also um, following the program they earned a seat at their own family philanthropy table and they started bringing things up and discussion with their families that uh, didn't exist before. So when youth um, have opportunities in the philanthropic field, they run up the ramp, whereas adults um, see roadblocks instead of an on-ramp. So that's kind of what brought me here. I started working with the families, then I got trained in multi-generational family philanthropy, and then I just recently got my chartered advisor philanthropy cap, and I'm a 2164 multi-generationally trained um, advisor as well. So I just started working with families and just fell in love with it. That is an amazing story, Sue. Thank you. And I love the idea that you have had an impact on this group of teenagers because they will have an impact on others as well. So you, you planted some seeds, and that's wonderful. We live in a world where technology, apps, social media is the most frequent way that certain generations connect. And we have seen this rise during the pandemic. Do you see benefits and disadvantages to the technology in the way this generation communicates? Yes, right? I mean, this is a whole sociology experiment as it relates to the pandemic and especially with what's going on now. But there was a rise in use of technology, of course, that's been going on before, before the pandemic. And what I, what I witness is that the world, as I say, explodes in the palm of their hand with their cell phone. So everything is automatic, everything is palpable, everything is real. And I think that that creates a lot of stress and anxiety unless you give young people an opportunity to act on that. So uh, I think the birth and um, acceleration of online giving happened in the last, I would say, five years really exploded. And in fact, it, it grew about 21% in 2021. It's still only a small fraction of giving. Um, but I also think that, look, the click generation, the click or swipe generation um, can do good really quickly and easily. But I worry that the deeper level connections that you make, um, connecting either with people in need or even just with your family, it, there's something lost when you just do it um, through through technology. Can Point. I give you an example? Oh, please. When I was doing the, the Teen Foundation, we used to bring in issues our, our, the, the youth before they selected a mission statement should really understand. And one of the organizations I brought in was Life Learning Academy, which is a, a school on Treasure Island that's related to Delancey Street. And this school takes in kids that no one else in the district would want. These are gang kids. They, they really have a hard 
they've had a hard life and they're trying to transform it. And this Life Learning Academy was a way for them to do that. So we brought the, the youth, the teens, the students of Life Learning Academy Academy to meet the the Teen Foundation kids, so Teen Foundation can be can begin to understand what are the hurdles to success for these kids. And when the, the students at Life Learning Academy told their stories, they were in tears. My mm. students were in tears. The connection was unbelievable. You just don't get that through a a video chat. So I'm going to take this podcast in a slightly. Um interesting direction that I did not anticipate, but you aren't going to believe this, Sue, because I didn't know that was going to be your answer, obviously. But I actually interned for Life Learning Academy um, and for Delancey Street the summer after my junior year of college. So I was 21 years old, um, and I taught in their charter school a bunch of the students, and I actually worked in a girls' group home that they had for girls who'd been adjudicated through the courts uh, who were pretty much like 15 to maybe 18 or 19. And I ran cooking classes and helped them uh, on homework assignments, helped them find jobs. So what a funny connection. And I can completely appreciate just how powerful the experience is to have folks who are looking at donating to a cause, do some type of experiential work, or even just get to firsthand witness the stories of these young people. Because I have to say that was, for me, a incredibly transformative experience that summer and it actually inspired me to start a home for kids leaving the foster care system post-college so what a interesting world that the in a way that we uh, didn't imagine or what an interesting connection I should say um, and something I didn't anticipate coming into the podcast well you can't see me because we're on audio technology but I am smiling ear to ear ear to ear because life learning is has been one of my favorites the work they're doing is really incredible and motivating and the people there are incredible and um, so uh, yeah I'm really smiling you can't see it but I am this is great I can appreciate that completely and it really was it really stretched me in all the best ways you need to be stretched at that age in terms of what you bring to the table as a human, you know, what skills you have, how much you think you can help, the ways in which you can be helpful. And I learned a lot from the people who worked in that institution. So that was a funny connection. I'm going to, again, take take us back to the questions that we had talked about um, in the beginning. And, you know, one of the things I was struck by in your comment, because based on this, uh, based on your, your earlier statement around, you know, children who are asked to be brought into philanthropy and are resisting it. And I can honestly say the nonprofit I started dedicated to kids in the foster care system, we were constantly in front of family foundations, big and small, young and older donors. And I was always struck by the varying um, levels of engagement, the varying ways in which people thought about um, philanthropy. And so one of my questions is, you know, how as an advisor, do you deal with you know a younger person who has a differing view of philanthropy than their parents might? I'm thinking of the you know the classic age old, the father who says we're going to create a foundation, everybody's going to join it, and we're going to decide everything by committee. And you know maybe even adult children who are saying, boy, this isn't all that interesting to me, or these aren't the causes that are important to me. You know how do you how do you work with families like that in in setting realistic expectations and making sure that they all remain engaged? So that that is a toughie, and the sooner these families are working with someone with some expertise on this, um, and, and if they have help early on, 
thinking about their goals and setting up a foundation structure that allows them to achieve their goals and gets um, stakeholders in on the ground early on, the more success they're going to have with it. But let's say they didn't do that. And let's say I, I find myself in this situation often. Grandma and grandpa started the foundation. They really want, uh, they really wanted their adult kids involved and those adult kids felt an obligation. So they were involved, but the, the grandkids don't feel like it's their money. And, and even though the grandparents want them involved, they've resisted. So my goal is to change that dynamic if that is indeed the family's goal. And to, to really think about doing an intake with each stakeholder to find out um, some background. What was, what was their own experience and story with wealth growing up? Has the family story been told? And when I talk about the family story, I'm talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Not only how the money was made, but maybe how it was lost or how Uncle Charlie had a really hard time with the extra wealth that was put in his bank account, like all of it. So understanding the whole family story is something I go back and, and, and want to make sure that everyone understands. Um, and I do more intake on who were your role models role, uh, growing up? What role did philanthropy play in your life growing up? Who did you see who were your role models in giving? Uh, what programs helped you growing up? Other questions I ask, what, even what's it like being part of this family? Some of these questions just get at, at um, issues that help me uncover some underlying threats to the health of any family foundation. Once I get all this data about these experiences they had with wealth, and what their new goals are, we can talk about setting up a structure that allows voice and choice and some flexibility and some breathing into the family foundation. Um, and I find myself often, even once goals are set, having to make sure everyone can understand a generational lens that each different generation has in the room. What were the experiences and historical events that affected um, our traditionalists, our millennials, and how does that affect who they are and how they make decisions? So when someone says something like grandpa says, oh, well, we support it this way because we've supported it this way. If you understand this generational lens, you can say, oh, that's, that's why grandpa thinks that. Okay, all right, how do we get around this? So that's some of the work that I do to help people uncover what their real goals are, where they, they personally fit in this um, foundation paradigm. And also I keep asking people to leave room for voice and choice. And look, if something is really broken and a family cannot come to agreements around things because the differences are too big or the desire is not there to come together, then I also recommend discretionary grant making, sharing the results of that discretionary grant making. So we begin to break down uh, barriers between generations. Can you describe a little bit more about what that process is in discretionary grant making? So discretionary grant making has a couple of different purposes. In, um, and I'll illustrate some of the, the ways it is used with the families I work with. So discretionary grant making can be a tool for family members or foundation uh, trustees to grant outside of the uh, expressed mission of the foundation. It can also be used as um, an individual's way of expressing their values and sharing what's important to them with foundation trustees or family members. That's one way it's used. And another way is when um, family members are not prioritizing giving together, but they're prioritizing giving an opportunity for different generations or different family members to make 
their own decisions, either because coming together is too difficult or just because they want to give total autonomy. They give discretionary grants and uh, discretionary grant-making opportunities to those family members. The key for me is making sure that even with discretionary grant-making and with the autonomy it has, that uh, those grant-makers are still aware of where the family money came from, what the stories around the money were, and what the priorities of the wealth earners are, and that they still can do something completely outside that, and that there's a place to share what the discretionary grant making, what they chose and why. So there's an opening to, um, to conversation of what different people care about. So when we think about the rising generation and where their philanthropic priorities lie, are there industries or causes that they are supporting that previously you know, philanthropy wasn't dedicated to and perhaps might even be viewed by the older generations as something a bit more controversial. I'm thinking about things like the cannabis industry or other fields that, you know, historically wouldn't have been, you know, a hospital or the arts or something that we know has had longstanding multi-generational family support, but something that's a bit unique. And and how how is it possible for those younger people to support these causes and and for family members to all be on board with the same platform, if that makes sense. So this is a tough one. Um, Look, I don't know much about the cannabis industry, so I cannot comment on that. But I will tell you that the families that I work with, the young people over the last five years have completely been drawn to environment, to giving to the environment and the changes uh, to prevent climate change. And they're also really especially lately, drawn to help end institutional racism. Um, and, and I find that they are doing much more teaching to the older generations about individual responsibility for these things and individual contribution. Um, how, how have we as a family um, possibly inadvertently, hopefully inadvertently contributed to the institutional racism going on in our community. How does our foundation do that? How can we change? And what might that look like? So I, I think the younger generation is um, expecting change and movement on these fronts and initiating it. I can imagine that being ripe, though, for family discord. So not just among political lines, but along value lines. How do you navigate it when a generation who was perhaps the wealth creator and the wealth beneficiary don't agree? So when you say the wealth beneficiary, are you talking about, like, for example, a family foundation, those family members that are allowed to be part of the grant-making team? Or are you talking beneficiaries being the grantees, the, the, the organizations that are receiving grants? I was thinking about more the family members. The family members. Okay. Um, I always go back to what is the goal. And if the, the wealth earner really wants to keep the family together across generations, there are times that I have to challenge them about, um, or remind, I'll say remind them rather than challenge them, remind them that that has been their goal. And I need to point out things that they are saying or doing that become roadblocks in achieving that goal. You know, for example, a family foundation that has religious beginnings where the next generation really was about women's rights and around abortion, how that 
was diametrically opposed to where the family had begun and where they had started and what their intentions were. Um, that it took quite a bit of conversation to get to a point where discretionary grants were allowed by the younger generation and just a little crack or crevice was open to explain why that was important to the younger generation. But it, it is hard when there's difference in, in what's important. So, yes, I can imagine that it's both difficult, but I can also see a scenario where the difficulty of those conversations would be enriching to everybody who participates. Is that what you find? That just the talk of philanthropy and donations can foster connections among generations that wouldn't otherwise be there. Oh my God, the value of the value of talking about your values, what's important to you in the name of doing good in the world is the I find is the easiest and best way for families to come together, even families with such varying um, Varying, varying concerns in the world that seems so different. Yes, when you come, to, when you, everyone comes to the table with the premise of we are going to go do something good in the world, it, it's just a, it's a starting block. It's a business meeting. It's 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 just the beginning of so much more. When when youth, and I will say everyone in a family, but look, I'm a youth specialist. So when youth get involved in philanthropy around the table, it is so much more than about the giving. It is about learning um, skills of discussions, of, of leading discussions, of decision making, of research, of present, presenting your ideas. It is an exercise in listening. Um, and it's all about Values and we're, I mean, like, it's not you know, you don't always talk about your values, but when you do it around a family philanthropic table for the purpose of doing good in the world, it just connects in such an important way. And discussions happen that you didn't plan on if that is paired with actual not only giving but doing together, it, it's it's priceless, it's powerful, and it's priceless. So what role do grandparents play when they're sharing experiences of generational wealth engagement? <laughs> grandparents are one of my favorites to work with because there's so many ways that they can do this. Sometimes when we skip a generation, we take out their kids, but we pair grandparents with grandkids to make a difference in the world. Um, some of that... I mean, you guys know you work in, in the psychology field with so many families. Sometimes it takes out that um, interrupter. Whatever, you know, whatever's going on between the parents and their kids is taken out. And it's just grandparent and grandkid. And, and the authenticity in if the grandparents authentically want to do this with their grandkids, but also want to authentically um, make a difference on something that matters to their grandkids and hear that what their grandkids have to say, it, it's, it's amazing. It is, it is amazing. Um, so that's one way. So doing a generation skipping piece is one way that we, we get grandparents involved. Also, um, another way is, is grandparents often fund 
family connections, such as family retreats, family gatherings. One of the things that we know in all the studies that are going on about families that make it across, um, across generations, across times, even through 100 years, is those families invest in two unique things. One is being together, actual experiences together and gathering, and the second is learning together. And if you can imagine learning together, the more generations that learn together, the more generational lenses you have, um, different perspectives on, on, on an event, the richer it is for everybody. So that is something. And also the historical context that grandparents bring to all of these discussions is rich, is just rich. And often kids are tired of hearing from their parents. <laughs> that really? is very true. <laughs> I guess I want to end on one last question, which is, you know, and I'm sure you hear this because we hear it even with our services, which are obviously different than, than what you're providing to families. But, you know, for the advisor who is perhaps a little bit cynical or for the family member even who says, you know, I think we can figure this out on our own. We're just going to talk about where we gave money before and we'll all bring some ideas to the table. What's your response to that in terms of, you know, engaging with you or other advisors that support the philanthropic journey of families? You know, what what would be your rebuttal perhaps to that um, that type of comment? Even the most skilled and well-intentioned person who wants to bring their family together to do good in the world can benefit from a discussion from a professional who does this. It's really beneficial to think about who you want to engage around that table, why you want to engage them, how you want to engage them, you, to think um, about the longevity of this piece and how you introduce it and how you ask, like your kids, for example, how they want to be involved, it matters. It matters long term. So having the intention of doing good is wonderful, but you're going to get the most out of it by consulting a professional and having them ask you some questions about your long term goals and vision for this. I also have experienced, so one of my favorite clients of all time brought me in because she had tried to do this with her millennial kids. And even though she has a very large foundation, um, her kids had not been involved. And so she wanted to start out kind of small and she wanted to give them $1,000 to give away together. And they flipped out on her um, for many reasons. And it was so, it became, um, it became an argument and it became... They were in Hawaii on a family trip and she thought this was gonna be amazing and wonderful and an opportunity and her kids flipped out. And um, then a year later she called me. I mean, she had to settle down. It was such a negative experience. She had to settle down and, and she finally called me and she said, look, this is what happened. Um, do you think that there's a chance that we could revisit this? And I said, well, we can't revisit that, but let's talk about where you wanna go and let's talk about um, how we can get there. And um, we are five years in now on a, on a siblings retreat. And um, this group who freaked out about $1,000 is giving away about $30,000 a year. And they um, spend time every year, not only with their mom telling them what they, care, what they care about and why, but also with the grandparents. And they're also beginning to influence uh, nieces and nephews that come in and out um, from the beach at this family compound uh, to tell them what they're doing and, and to encourage them to do good as well. So even the best intentioned family members can really use some professional guidance in setting this up. If you do something that doesn't go well, it really, it's gonna take a big breather and, um, 
<laughs> it's really hard to bring those millennials back to the table with any smile on their face. So um, I really suggest, as Arden, you mentioned, to bring in a professional, just have that conversation to make sure you're really clear about what you want and how you might get there and what the pitfalls might be. I'm glad I asked the question. Sue, thank you so much for an engaging and thoughtful discussion today about philanthropy and working with multi-generational families. We really enjoyed having you as a guest. You know, Arden, I want to just say on my website, there are books about raising, there's there's handouts, books about raising well-grounded kids with wealth, and even um, several book recommendations about how to get started in family philanthropy. So if you're looking for some additional resources, that is where you would, that's, that's where you might find them. I love that. That's very helpful to our listeners. And thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. If you're so inclined, please like us or send a positive review on your podcast platform of choice. And we hope you'll tune in to the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.